Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 31st, 2018. 41 years ago, today, I was sworn into the Florida Bar and a week or two later into the Federal Bar. So I've been doing this for 41 years, along with investment banking work that I've done periodically since my departure from Wall Street. Tonight, Charles Marshall, as we continue... Uh, to talk about the single basic question about virtually all foreclosures. Charles joins us to discuss whether and how all or most foreclosures are simply fake and fraudulent. I think they are. Tonight's focus is on the so-called aggregation of loans that banks claim has happened, and then the so-called subsequent sale of the pool created by the aggregation, the pool being supposedly a bunch of loans that are owned, and the emergence of documents that refer to non-existent contracts and events, like, for example, assignments of mortgage. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the homepage of the blog or call 954-451-1230, which is our new main number and not the number to reach the show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If what I do has value for you and what Charles does has value for you and what Bill Padalo has has done has value for you and hundreds of other people that have been contributors to the blog and to this radio show, if that has value for you 
then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So welcome, Charles Marshall. We usually alternate... We usually alternate weeks, but tonight I have the pleasure of being on with you again. Yes, it is great. It, it is great to be b- back here on the show in tandem, Neil. Very much so. Yeah. So here's the uh, the hook that I want to throw out for tonight. I think one of the bottom lines of tonight's discussion is the faulty presumption by nearly everyone, that a written contract is binding and enforceable even if nothing in the contract is true. And I would would follow that up with the fact that an assignment of mortgage can only be the product of a real transaction where the underlying debt is acquired. So... Uh, another example that I was thinking about shortly before the opening of the show was if I'm dickering with somebody who might want to buy my car and we come to an oral agreement, he'll pay me $10,000 and I'll sign over the title to the car. So I sign the title. Does that make him the owner? And the answer is no, not unless I give him the title after I've signed it. And in the event that he takes his $10,000 and the keys and runs off, I can get the car back. So the contract that was almost created when he didn't pay me and I didn't give him the title, even though I had signed it, that's not an enforceable contract by either side. He hadn't given me the money, and I hadn't given him the title. So I think that we lose sight of of the most simple things in the law when we get lost in the weeds because of the illusion of uh, the illusion of complexity that the banks have created. So, um, well, first I'll ask Charles, uh, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Contrived complexity, as I, as I always like to say. I mean, clearly you're pointing to uh, essentially the, the, the factor six that you had on the blog in connection with today's show. And the reciprocal consideration, reciprocal consideration, it really isn't there. I mean, the borrower is signing away what they think is an obligation to pay. And 
oftentimes, in fact, typically, there are closing costs associated with that. Sometimes even the first month's mortgage payment. And yet, what do they get in return? They they often get closing documents which theoretically fulfill the role of the reciprocal consideration, except in the real world they don't because sometimes within days of whatever documents they receive, the the note has already been sent down the rabbit hole. And the securitization is anticipated from the very beginning, even though the borrower knows nothing about the securitization and the vast majority of any of these cases that we've been litigating all these years and any of the scenarios that we discuss. So the other problem we, we see with these transactions is they fail to meet the terms of your factor two when you're looking at the basics of offer and acceptance as it relates to contract law. Because the borrower is not accepting the exact terms because from the borrower's point of view, the party in front of him is who, who he owes the money to. The party in front of him or her with whom the mortgage closing was arranged, that's, that's the party they owe money to. Uh, not somebody who's going to appear literally within days sometimes. And again, then the, the mortgage note goes down a rabbit hole. So I think you're framing these cases around the fundamentals of contract law is, is a kind of good new start to a way to get judges to really take notice of what's going on in these cases and how these cases really need to be reframed by the judicial system. And though you and I haven't discussed this right now, uh, I'll put it out. I'll put it out within our conversation. It kind of relates to the way that, and I must say I've done this in a lot of my lawsuits and I mean, I'm inclined to move away from this practice where we attach so many of the recorded instruments, be they, be they the deeds of trust or be they the, uh, the recorded notice of default, notice of trustee sale. I mean, yes, we, we on our side provide that record into a lawsuit with the purpose of, of then attacking those instruments, showing the irregularities and outright illegalities in many cases showing that the proper parties are not before the court. And yet, then the court will take judicial notice in a huge number of cases of our documents, which we tell the court we're disputing from the time we filed them. And yet, they still take judicial notice. So, and I think this relates to a point I've heard you, you make repeatedly, Neil, and I agree with you. Less is absolutely more we need to provide a lot fewer documents and exhibits going into these lawsuits, no matter which side we're on, plaintiff or defendant. And we need to go back to, to first principles. And I think contract law is a good place to start that. Yeah. I, and I, I guess I've been screaming about this, uh, uh, you know, the whole time I've uh, been involved or looking at, 
the uh, mortgage and foreclosure marketplace. Um, uh, I I got my first heads up when there was a closing in Arizona or a series of closings in Arizona uh, where um, it became clear that the principals involved could not have an original of the contract. So if you're buying a house, you would sign a copy of the contract, send it into the broker, and the seller would sign a copy of the contract, send it into the broker, and neither one of us would get an original signed by both. That really alerted me to the fact that something was going on because in the banking industry, and I used to represent banks, I was on the board of some, um, that practice of not having original documentation that is completed uh, would be totally unacceptable. This is not rocket science. I remember my contracts professor uh, some 43 years ago, uh, reminding us as students that the note is not the debt. It is evidence of the debt. A contract is not binding and enforceable unless something happens where there is an exchange of consideration. He warned us, Samuel Bader, his name was, may he rest in peace, that practically every case involving financial transactions is going to get gnarled up in confusion between a written document and what actually happened in real life. After litigating now for 41 years, I can say that his warning was dead on right. That's what we're dealing with here. You've got this so-called... Uh, assignment of mortgage that emerges out of the murky waters of MERS or some other entity like it, and you have no indication that anything else ever happened. Was the was the debt conveyed to the uh, uh, the so-called transferee, who they want us to think is a buyer? Did anyone pay for the debt? The answer is no. In every transaction I've ever looked at, analyzed, and and tore apart either on the witness stand, in court, depositions, or in other discovery. It just isn't there. So the, the effect, I think, of this confusion and I don't know whether you'd say that the judges are intentionally confused or uh, negligently confused, um, is that homeowners get stuck, even in judicial jurisdictions here in Florida, with a burden of proof they should not have. A simple denial of the allegation in the complaint or the assertion in the foreclosing parties' notices should be enough to force them to prove it, whether it's in judicial states or non-judicial. 
but the courts continue to require the homeowner to assert claims for affirmative relief based upon facts that amount to only a denial and the proof of which only the other side possesses and controls. I think that is a simple denial of due process. Uh, denial in the worst sense of the word. It's like it doesn't exist. Um, I, when I first uh, had my first encounter with non-judicial foreclosures, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it from the standpoint of the way foreclosures used to be because most foreclosures are uncontested and they are valid. They, you know, uh, it's the original lender or once removed and they uh, uh, send the notices and all of that stuff and they foreclose and the uh, homeowner generally leaves the home and, you know, uh, whatever deal is made, uh, sometimes with cash for keys. But now, the incredible thing to me is that nobody's asking why the banks are sitting back and letting cases go 8, 10, even 12 years on what they said was a simple foreclosure. And the answer has to be that they're making money by waiting. And if they're making money by waiting, it's certainly not from the homeowner who stopped paying either because he doubted they had the right to collect or because he ran out of money or whatever it might be. So what we end up with here is that we're continuing to allow the courts and the non-judicial foreclosure process to be the place, the venue, where all of the illegal acts, fabrication, fraud, robo-signing, forgery, all of that is wrapped up with a seal of approval. So the foreclosure really is very important to the banks, and a modification raises other issues. But they, they do like to do a certain number of modifications because in effect, they are they're getting a signature from the borrower that says, okay, my new lender is whoever it is, and he waves the the, the borrower waves the right to contest any of that, leaving the borrower later with then possibly having a two tier uh, uh, obstacle which is that the borrower 
in order to penetrate this, may have to penetrate the modification agreement and then penetrate the note and mortgage as having been invalid. I still think, Charles, based upon everything I know and every interview I've conducted on Wall Street by people who do know, I still think that the major, virtually all of the refis and the majority of originations on the the first uh, the purchase money mortgage um, were not funded by the apparent um, uh, originator. That means that when and, and this is a problem potentially for closing agents. That means when the borrower signed the mortgage and signed the note and gave it to the closing agent, the closing agent may have had an, an obligation or might not to have noticed the fact that he wasn't getting money from the originator. The wire transfer receipt <clears throat> was never traced. And in cases where I've done the tracing, it never led back to the originator. Not even by some agreement. So we're continuing like, you know, in the Madoff scandal, what was he doing? He was just taking in money and he was issuing a bunch of paper in the form of... Uh, uh, transaction confirmations in the form of end-of-the-month statements, and it all looked perfectly right. But the fact is, he hadn't done a trade in 20 years. He was just funding all of his ventures off of incoming investors giving him money because he was giving the unheard-of return of 16% per year that was virtually guaranteed, the investors thought. So there's some blame for the investors here that if something is out of line and looks too good to be true, it is too good to be true. But the point is that that's what the banks are doing. And the Madoff scandal was just what the banks needed and maybe was triggered by them because I can't believe knowing Wall Street as I do they're, all the traders are like washerwomen they're constantly gossiping to each other about this and that and they knew that no trades were being done by Madoff so I have a theory I don't know this and nobody has told me but I still have a theory that Madoff was pushed under the bus at just the right time to cause a public outcry of the largest economic fraud in history in order to cover up an economic fraud that was a thousand times larger. So that's a really good point. No, I think that's a great point, Neil. Essentially, Madoff, however big his operation, and it did bring in 
huge amounts of money. However big his operation, it was still essentially a retail operation, so to speak. Right. Whereas, whereas as as you know, as I I'm inclined to uh, remind listeners, the the elimination of the Glass Steagall Act, uh, which by the way, at least some of the provisions of that were put into place during the economic meltdown as part of the uh, post-meltdown legal architecture to, quote-unquote, prevent this from happening again. Now, the current administration is talking about going back to what would amount to going back to Glass-Steagall. And for just a brief review on that, it basically allowed big-time commercial mortgage companies and financial institutions like J.P. Morgan, like their financial spinoff, Morgan Stanley. Uh, and the reason they had the financial spinoff, Morgan Stanley, was to do stock trading and other types of derivatives trading. But the big banks and the big mortgage companies, even under the aegis of something like Wells Fargo Home Mortgage or, or Bank of America uh, Mortgage, Glass-Steagall allowed them to get involved in these complex uh, securitized arrangements with the thousands of loans all shoved into one theoretical instrument, which, as you, Neil, rightly point out, is essentially sandpaper. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, at the time of the crash, they were they were putting these massive P- PSA securitized trusts into offshore hedge funds, which were derivatives of derivatives. The bottom line, Glass-Steagall allowed what were supposed to be retail mom-and-pop um, mortgages, meaning the on-the-street mortgages of regular people. Those were always supposed to be handled by local, local savings and loans and smaller banks, and those small banks could not, at the same time that they're handling these mortgages, be doing advanced high finance trading. And of course, once Glass-Steagall was gone, the securitized bubble started. And that was way back in the late 90s. So all these big commercial institutions, too big to fail as we've come to know them, they start doing retail mortgage lending after the disappearance of Glass-Steagall. And it is, I suppose, in a, in a macabre way, it's fascinating to see that we're going back to this uh, this same failed uh, nightmare, it appears. And uh, a lot of the fundamentals of the economy look very much like they looked back in 2008, right before the crash. And I think you're absolutely right about the legal system letting far too much of this just 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 pass through the system without uh, properly vetting and and putting some due diligence on the documents coming through. And I I think that's that's partly what's happening even at the retail end. There's not nearly enough due diligence going on to prevent a, a, a mortgage collapse 2.0, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And one of the things that always 
annoys me when I'm examining documents, particularly assignments of mortgage, is that if you look in the signature block, you can see that they are intentionally obfuscating who, whoever is or might be the responsible party. You have one party named as a grantor uh, on, on some of the assignments or asinor, and you have a person signing who really clear on whether they are claiming to be the assistant secretary for the servicer who in turn is appearing on the document they say as attorney in fact without making any reference to any power of attorney by date, description, recording information or anything else. So I think that if if you just look at 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 what the forensic uh examiners are all telling us, it becomes obvious that something is egregiously wrong. And that brings us to the end of our show already. Uh, I've got two different clocks that are being shown to me by Blog Talk Radio, but I think this is it. So thank you, Charles, for joining me, and yeah, we'll, we'll be back with our audience in uh, next week, and have a good weekend, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in the